Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 145. I'm really excited for today's guest. It's one of the most accomplished college baseball coaches in the game today. And what I'm really excited about this is this is a guy that I've known close to 15 years. Um, you know, and back in that time, he was recruiting some of our high school athletes and had some really good dialogues. And I was, I was an up and coming in my coaching career. And he had some good advice just along the way. And I um, really appreciated his way of going about doing things and learn more and more about the program and saw some of the great athletes they were kicking out. And what's really cool now is, is actually several of our, our formal guests um, played for him at, at, at his university and, and a couple of them actually gone on to the coaching ranks in professional baseball. And it's been cool to reflect with them on how powerful um, you know his interactions with them were for their, their long-term career development, even beyond just as baseball players, as, as coaches and as people. So really uh, learned to appreciate what he was doing um, in a very special way at his university. And I think there's some, some awesome lessons in this podcast that'll exemplify why that's the case. So I think we're in for a really good one. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on-the-road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E. S-S-E-Y. Today's guest began his tenure as Vanderbilt's head baseball coach in 2003, and since that time, Commodore teams have a record of 841-401 for a 678 winning percentage, which ranks first all-time in both wins and winning percentage. Vanderbilt has made 16 consecutive NCAA tournament appearances, including five College World Series appearances, four trips to the finals, and two national championships. Since 2003, Vanderbilt has produced 54 All-Americans, and 29 players have made their Major League debuts. 
Prior to Vanderbilt, he was an assistant coach at Clemson for nine seasons. He was named a National Consistent Coach of the Year in 2000 by Baseball America and the American Baseball Coaches Association. Before Clemson, he served as head coach at Presbyterian College for six seasons, Wofford as an assistant coach for one year, and Ohio State as a graduate assistant for one year. He also had stints as head coach and assistant coach for the Team USA Collegiate National Team in 2006 and 2000, respectively. In January 2020, he was inducted into the American Baseball Coaches Association Hall of Fame. Please welcome to the show, Tim Corbin. Tim, Happy New Year and welcome to the show. Likewise, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a busy guy and you got a, a lot of planning ready to roll for this, uh, this upcoming season. So I'm, I'm sure there'll be some excellent stuff to share with a, a larger audience here. Well, I hope so. Thank you. Um, so, I, you know, we can go in a million different directions on this, um, but I, I think there's always something to be said about coaches who have had success in multiple different scenarios, different schools, different uh, levels across extended periods of time. And you've definitely done that, you know, not just with your time at Vanderbilt, but before that at Clemson in an assistant role and then at Presbyterian before that. I'm curious, you know, how has coaching changed in the time that you've been involved as a coach? And, you know, are there certain key coaching principles that maybe are timeless and consistent across any situation, any level, any era in which you have coached? Well, yeah, I mean, there's certainly been changes. Uh, been what, 38, 39 years now. And I'm a, I'm a sixties kid. I was born in the sixties. So my perspective, whether it's right or wrong was kind of shaped by that, you know, just years of watching 60 athletes, 70 athletes and, and moving forward. I, I think the areas of change today are, are probably the, the kids probably carry more luggage with them when they come into your program. Uh, I think in, in today's athlete, they, they certainly, uh, they, they look better than any athlete we've ever seen, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, I don't think it matters what the sport is, but I think in their development, they probably secured more coaches, more teachers. Um, in, in some ways, their parents have spent more resources to help them. And I would say because of that, there, there's probably a little bit more expectation for them, which creates a lot of different scenarios. It, it certainly creates some stress for the athlete, some pressure. Um, and I think because of that, too, the, the kids are starting to specialize a little bit more than than they did when, um, you know, I was growing up. Um, that's not the case with every athlete, but certainly the case a little bit more. So it's a little bit more individualized. So I, I think that that's different for sure. I think there's more specialization and I think the parents are involved in their lives a little bit more, which I think, as you see, uh, it, it becomes tougher and tougher with, with kids to get in team environments and, and just let themselves go a little bit more. I think the things that are, that are consistent, at least for me is, Kids will always need uh, discipline and, and structure and organization, Eric. I, I don't think that will ever change, and it won't change in our program. I think uh, along the way, I've tried to create uh, an environment where the kids can – be, we become more the facilitators, and they take ownership of the environment to try to make it fun. But I, I think the team environment, playing the game for others outside of yourself, um, not enabling kids – uh, not showcasing, learning how to compete, not auditioning, just getting an environment and just keeping it raw and keeping it real. And there's a, 
I would say more of a, a playground feeling to what we're doing on the field than just a, a scientific methodology for creating a baseball team. I think that's probably why I've gone to more classroom uh, environment prior to getting on the field. And then when the kids get on the field, it really becomes theirs. So I, I think that's that's the consistent piece, just the the discipline, because the kids won't ask for it, but they want it. And uh, I think discipline creates and it's been said in a lot of different ways, a lot of freedom for these kids if they can find themselves organized before they get to the environment. I love that. And I'm actually interested is, you know, the, the average athlete that you get on day one, is it markedly different now than it was, you know, say eight, 10 years ago? I, you know, obviously we refer to early sports specialization and with that comes, mm-hmm. you know, more funky elbows and more previous ACL operations and things like that. Are you getting kids that, you know, maybe aren't even, uh, necessarily just more injured, but also is it a, a scenario where there's, there's, there's fewer fundamentals, you know, there's more showcasing in high school ball as opposed to true developmental opportunities. Like, is it basics and putting guys back together more often than you would have thought? Yeah, I, I would say for sure. I, I would say that the, the, the skill development, the talent might be more, uh, the strength, uh, the ability to, to hit a ball hard and further, uh, the be, the ability to to throw a ball further and harder, all of those things are greater than we've ever seen. But how to take those resources and implement them into a team environment and play a game is less. Uh, I think that has probably much to do with you know in all of this too, Eric. I, it, it's not it's not these kids' fault. I mean, it's the environment around us. Actually, the fault comes from if it's fault. I don't. That might not be the word either. But it's the adults ourselves, whether it's parents, coaches and teachers, we create these environments for these kids to grow up into. So that that playground mentality of of just uh, being able to to do things with other kids and just enjoy environments. You look at it this way. If you went to an elementary school and which which parents wouldn't once they drop their child off, they just trust the teachers to to run the environment. But during during the day, there is a. there's an, a period where the kids uh, attack the playground and there's not parents out there watching. And you can see that there's a sense of enjoyment because kids are not strapped by anything. They're not trying to, trying to impress. You get to environments where at least in a, in a, in the, at the youthful levels where there's more parents and there's more attention in those settings, those smiles drop quite a bit. And it's probably because Kids are carrying around luggage on both hands, and they, they, it, that takes a lot of resource, too, just to, to try to enjoy the environments they're in. So I think that part is, has certainly found its way in, into these environments today. Um, but I, I would say that that's probably the area of why kids have, have changed so much, because there is so, special, so much specialization and because kids oftentimes find themselves doing it for others outside of themselves. I think when kids and when parents and teachers can teach, teach themselves how to release the opportunity to the kids, it becomes more of the kids. And then it becomes more of the team. And when it becomes more of the team, there's a greater emotion that's involved in the experience. And uh, I think that's, that's the area that we, we probably must improve the most. I think that sentiment's important is it's the kids haven't changed. It's the, it's the circumstances that govern how kids behave. That's, that's changed so dramatically. 
Yeah, I would I would say so for, for sure. And and with every year, Eric, and you see it because you you're a part of it, it. It seems to be more and more that way, going in that direction. Do you um do you think the ship? There's a way to write that ship. I, I mean that in uh you know, I, I'm speaking from a position of humility because I'm not sure what the path is, is, you know, how do we get back to a position where, you know, the game is is taught more fundamentally sound, where, you know, a lot of these coaching principles that we know to be true, right? All the research shows that early sports specialization, you know, leads to higher injury rates and things like that. Do you think there's a, a an end that, that that's favorable in sight or is this something that kind of can't be undone? I think it can be modified. You know, I, I even use the, the, uh, the point of, you know, our daughter, we, ju- we just had a grandson and, and they just, uh, Kyle and, and, and Molly uh, were searching out schools for their one year old just to to help them uh, during the course of the day because they both work. And one of the stipulations of that school was once you drop your kid off, you can never enter the school and only to pick them up. And I thought, you know, if you could create an athletic environment where you just drop your child off and the only people present were the people that were officiating the environment and the coaches themselves, and that was it, how much more instructive would that would that environment be for the kids? How much more fun would that environment be for the kids? Because you feel like the stimulus and the addition of more adults only gets in the way of what is trying to be created inside that environment, whether it's learning, whether you're turning off the scoreboard, whether you're just trying to play competition against an an opponent and trying to learn how to play a game. Those are the areas right there that I think, uh, I, I, I think we could benefit from if we were able to challenge ourselves enough to say, okay, I'm just going to drop off my child and let them, let them be. I think that would starting there would create more of a more fundamental growth. But I'd say just at the at the basic level, just an opportunity for kids to make more gains and more happiness in that sport. It's a great point. I was actually I recently read a book. It's a couple of years older. Um, it's uh, Every Moment Matters by John O'Sullivan, who's involved with the Positive Coaching Alliance. And he's having in the soccer community. He talked about, you know, every time the U.S. women's national team has won the World Cup, there's a surge in participation in, in female youth soccer. And and he talked about how coaches kill it because what they do is they overdrill kids. They, you know, they take the fun out of it. And he really emphasized this concept of practices being structured as whole part whole. Kids fall in love with the gameplay. So you, you, you effectively have to rope them in with the free pay that they normally would have gotten on a playground by themselves when there weren't so many parents involved. And then you use it as a kind of an avenue through which you can teach the skill work and then, you know, basically finish with the hole at the end. And, you know, I've seen it and I have eight year old daughters and you're right. The practices can be, they can almost be too technical and they can take the fun out of it. And the last thing I want to do is lose, lose kids at a really young age. So I think the, the, the point of like getting parents out of the way and letting them play is really, really important. Yeah, I I believe so too. Um, So, you know, maybe shifting gears a little bit, I'm always super fascinated by this concept of culture change. And I know culture is a little bit of a buzzword that can go in a lot of different directions, but you, you certainly have a history of turning around programs into winners, you know, after dry spells, both at you know, Presbyterian and Vanderbilt. What were some of the key lessons that you learned um, going into both these places? Obviously there were different times, you know, periods and what initiatives do you think were key to the success that you've had, in, you know, not just turning a program around, but also making it, you know, sustainable success. 
You know, I, I think the, the first thing that was probably most important for me, Eric, was just trying to find the, the right fit of institution first. I, I think a lot of coaches, when they decide to teach and coach, they, they sometimes find themselves in situations that don't match who they are as a person and, and what they're really looking towards. I, I was a private school kid. I mean, I was a, a public school kid growing up, but I went to Kimball Union Academy as a PG. And I think that started my private school uh, thought process because from there I went to a little school called Ohio Wesleyan. But what that did is it, it kind of shaped my thought process of what I wanted to be around, whether it was as a teacher or coach. And I initially just wanted to be a teacher. When I went to Presbyterian College, that was much like Ohio Wesleyan. It was a startup, never had baseball before. So it was starting a program from the ground level. And then after being there for six years and being at Clemson for nine, I really felt like I was going to stay at Clemson the rest of my life. Uh, there were opportunities that were available for Maggie and I. We just didn't didn't feel like they were the ones we wanted. When Vanderbilt came around, it was different because there again, it matched kind of a, a an academic private school environment that I felt like, yeah, that fits. That Those are the type of kids that I want to be around where I think organization of mind, uh, competing in, in several areas once you get on campus, not just on the ball field, but academically and socially, that resonated with me. And, and I felt like if that was important to the kids, then I, I thought that that would be a good match. And I think at Vanderbilt, uh, I always am careful because I, you know, I, I do think you're right. A lot of guys come into a program saying we're going to change the culture here. I, I think culture is over time and I've been here 21 years. So it, it's it's taken a lot of time to do that. I think the question I get is when do you, did you finally feel like your culture, so to speak, was moving in the direction that you thought it could. And I, I thought, you know, 10, 11 years into it. And that's not based on going to the College World Series. That's based on when the players themselves start implementing the standards and the values of the program. Yeah. And the older kids start passing it down. And they start modeling the behaviors that, that you're looking for. And yeah, you can move the needle initially because you can demand more, you can expect more, you can you can talk about what investment really looks like. But I, I think that culture needs consistency in time. It needs consistent messaging. It, get, it needs consistent people. Uh, and that's players too. I, I think it's very difficult to build a culture when you have kids that are in and out every year. Um, you know, in our line of, of work, uh, if you get a really good player, you may have them for just three years and sometimes now two because kids are leaving after they turn 21 and kids are coming into college a little bit older these days. But I think culture is created over time. I think the biggest thing is creating an environment, an environment where kids are growing, learning and more modeling and teaching the behaviors that, that you look for in a program. And I, I think over the 21 years, I think that's the part that we can lean towards as being the thing that we're proud of most is just the consistency of our culture over that over those years. Is it a moving target as well? You know, I mean, does it does it change across eras and with, obviously with different kind of lineups and players? Absolutely, because you you don't you don't always have the same personalities. The the seats change every year. Uh, even if you get kids back, they're different every year. So there, there's no such thing as repeating anything. 
you, you have to go back to, to square one. And it's almost like you have to reinvent your program, not in its totality, but you got to look at it every year and say, what what worked in this past year might not work for this upcoming year. And I, I just look at how we started this fall as opposed to what we did last fall. Not that last fall was wrong because it's not, but it just you you find yourself in some years like this year with more seniors and really getting seniors is a gift because you don't get seniors all the time in college baseball, especially at our level. So we happened to get 10 seniors and I thought, my gosh, you know, Here's a time where we've got an opportunity to get the you, when you get kids back in your program, it's the best recruiting you can do. Yeah. And that's not to minimize the new kids in your program. But when you get kids that purposefully select to be there another year, that is a gift for a program. And I think you take advantage of that gift, but you also take advantage of it by modifying and reinventing the program for them as a gift to them as saying, OK, we're going to do things in a little bit different manner because now, because of your growth inside this program for years, you get the opportunity to run this program. Here's the keys. You, you move with it. Now, you walk alongside of them, but at the same time, we don't have to walk in front of them because they've been exposed to experiences that some of the younger kids have never been exposed to. I love that point. There was actually, and it made me think of um, Mikey Skremsky after his junior year. Um, Mike took the summer off from baseball. It's probably the first summer he hasn't played. He fished and he worked out at our facility. And I remember he was deciding whether to sign or not. And he ultimately wound up going back to, to Vanderbilt for a senior year. And I, I think so often we get caught up in this world of exit velocities and sprint speeds and, you know, the actual numbers on the field. But how many teammates did Mike Skremsky favorably impact in that senior year at Vanderbilt that, you know, had a trickle down effect and they, they ultimately won a national championship like the year after he left, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's such a great example of, of a senior inside of our program. And you wonder if Mike and Mike had the opportunity, as you said, to, yeah. to leave after the 12 season. And there was decent size money that he probably couldn't replicate coming back for his senior year. But, you know, it got to a point where for him, it was kind of a two pronged thing. Number one, I want to win a national championship. And number two, I want to finish my degree, which had nothing to do with financial resources. It had everything to do with his emotion for what he was doing because he had that emotion. He was also gifted more time and energy inside of a program, which made him better. Does he end up as a big league player if he leaves after 12, well, no one will ever know that. But you, you understand that also he wasn't in such a rush to get from point A to point B. He also understood. And maybe this is because he did have a grandfather that was a Hall of Fame player. He understood that time really is his greatest resource. And if he can use that to better himself, um, better himself also mentally from a leadership standpoint, then he's going to help himself long term, whether it's in baseball or whether it's beyond baseball. And, you know, knowing Mike now because he lives here in town and getting to see quite a bit of him, he's just such a wonderful story of, of what that looks like. And uh, we have him speak to our group or, or uh, recruits every time he has the opportunity to do so. I love it. Um, so I'm, I'm interesting little side of this. So I think it was probably 2010. Our facility was brand new. And I remember you were up, I think, for the holidays in Massachusetts. Yeah. And um, I think I actually picked you up and we rode out from the city to see the facility. Yep. It was when I think Tyler Beatty was still, he was probably this, his senior year winter. 
And I remember you came out and there were, there were a couple of things that stood out for me. First off is that you were completely locked in on the training guys were doing. You were asking about new pieces of equipment. So it was like a, a perfect example of like growth mindset. Like we weren't, we weren't anything at that point. We were very new. We were a bunch of rust and barbells and a little bit of energy in Metro West Massachusetts. So I was flattered that you even took the time. But on that car ride out, you asked me, you said, Chris, who's your toughest guy? And I'll never forget you asking that because it made me start to think a little bit different. Like what are college coaches actually looking for in players? Um, obviously there's, there's talent, but what, what are those qualities? What, you know, what are the things that you know that you can hang your hat on in a high school player kind of regardless of, of what the era in which they're operating is? Yeah. I, well, I, I think toughness is one of them. I, I think, and, and I'm not talking about getting in a ring and, and, yeah. and fighting. I'm talking about someone that is, uh, has the ability to bounce back. And I think mental toughness is, is a huge component of any athlete, especially right now. It's that, that person that, that they're resilient. They, they, they can help their team. They, they don't get knocked down very easily. So I, I think that's a huge component and tougher to find as well. I'd say a teachable spirit. I, I just think, you know, there's, there's kids out there that, that come into situations and because of, them may may have because of them growing so fast and being as good as they were maybe at a young age they were probably in some ways and this wasn't always intentional probably deemed not touchable by a coach so they probably were left alone and what ends up happening is a young person feels like okay well i i know this when in essence you, me, anyone, this is a, a learning experience for all of us. And I think a teachable spirit just is a kid that when you look at them, they take constructive criticism as a compliment. They look at it saying, this coach cares enough about me to help me along. And the thing about teachable spirit too for a coach is you always want to help that kid, not to a point where you you overspeak, but you just know he's always there because he's very curious. He's hungry for information and he, he just wants wants to get better. I, I think hungry for competition, too. I look at kids nowadays and kids who want to compete, you can tell. And I'm not saying they're always because they've played other sports, but you see whether it's Mike Yastrzemski who played other sports in high school, kids who play, whether it's hockey, football, tennis, another sport, they're team guys. They play those things because of the emotion that it brings them. And they're hungry to compete. They're hungry to win and lose. And you, you like that. Um, I, I think another piece that when we're looking at kids is really someone that can disengage from their parents and make this their opportunity. I think when you learn to love your parents more, but depend on them less, I think that's a trait that a kid says, I love my parents so much because what they did is they created a foundation of standards and values for me and then just kind of made my 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 track mine after that it was like we're here if you need us but we're just going to watch from afar and i think when you can bring a kid into your to your to your uh office and if he does come with his parents the parents you can see that the parents who have done this they just sit back and they'll go we're here we're here we're listening we don't need to be here if you want us here great but we, we just want our child to be exposed to this. And if you don't mind, we'd like to listen to because we'd like to listen to what he's earned in, in, in his life here. And, and I, I think those are the people we want to be around. I think low maintenance kids that just are they don't come with instructions. They just they show up and they go, I'm in. 
just g- g- give it, give me the experience. I'm in. Uh, you you can't get enough of those kids because you get enough of those kids. It wants you to keep on coaching, Chris. Yeah. And those kids are on the other side. It makes you start looking at when's my retirement. <laughs> you don't do that. You you want I want to coach the rest of my life, but you want to coach those kids that don't come with a lot of instructions. Well, the parent dynamic is an important one because effectively, you know, when a when a kid moves to Nashville from you know Ohio, wherever it is, it's a yeah. it's a brand new geography. It's a a totally different social circumstance. It's it's you know literally hundreds of new friends. Like if if you're competing for a parent's attention when you know when it, it actually comes time to to talk baseball, that's that's a huge red flag. It's it's it, you know it's it's effectively static as you're trying to coach. So right. um, you know so maybe that's a good segue into kind of the conversations of like the college recruiting picture is you know first off let's let's talk about the sheer volume of you know players who are, who are interested in being at Vanderbilt. Obviously, it's you know it's a school that's had a ton of success. It's a high academic institution. It's a very coveted. Like what's, what kind of outreach are we talking and, and how does your staff, you know, even begin to sort through it? I, I think there's, there's a couple ways. I mean, we're, we're not for everyone, obviously. I think the academic component helps us because it kind of minimizes the group of people that we're looking at. Although we've taken risks academically and brought them in front of admissions. And we say, because of the personality traits, we feel like this guy is, is going to, be successful here, or at least try to be successful. I, I just think it comes down to uh, personality, athletic skills, and academic skills, and kind of a combination of the three. The personality goes a long way. Someone who's a positive life force, someone who really, really enjoys the, the, what they're about to engage in. And that's just the, the holistic opportunity of, of going to college, having a social life, being part of an academic uh environment that's competitive, being a part of an SEC environment that's very competitive. I think those are what we're looking for. So that's that's not every kid. And not every kid wants the Vanderbilt either, because I think there is a, a level of discipline here and a level of, I say discipline, uh, there is, there's, there's, there's boundaries here. Uh, there, there's not, there's certainly freedom, but that freedom is earned and that freedom is gained through discipline. And I think for, for the structure inside of our program, it's not so structured where kids are offended by it. It's structured, though, in the in the in the way that we're trying to help the young man understand that this is what life looks like once you leave here, that waking up at eight in the morning, you will have already had to thought through what is about to happen after eight o'clock, not at eight o'clock. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it's it's teaching them the, the structure and the choices and decisions. How do you find those kids? I think just getting around them as much as you possibly can, whether it's our camps, whether it's uh, asking real intentional questions of like when I asked you, you know, it's like you gain a lot from people like Eric Cressy that aren't necessarily coaching that kid every day, but see a kid like Tyler Beatty or Adam Ravenel in environments where you can take back, say, yet, yeah, Corbs, this kid will fit. He'll fit. And, and here's why. And, and give you just good information on why you think that that kid will fit in those environments. And those two kids did. And I remember you talking about both kids in unique ways that sometimes coaches don't talk about them because coaches like myself, you want to protect your kids. But at the same time, as I tell our kids, that when you speak to someone else, whether it's a, a general manager or a scouting director or an evaluator about a kid, you're going to tell them the things that, that stand out the most. If those things don't stand out, you're just not going to talk. 
And I think when those words aren't spoken, then basically you have your answers. When words are spoken, then you have your answers too, because you know that that coach wouldn't say those things unless he was really invested in that young man, because he's certainly not going to put himself in a, in a poor position. So I think that when we're looking for that kid, we, we try to be good detectives. We try to f- seek out the, the best questions we can to get the answers that we're looking for. It seems like very often, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, is a successful school like this, it's it's not that the players find you anymore. Like they don't they don't reach out and you know win you over with an email and a recruiting video. More often than not, this level, it's happening through relationships. You're you're aware of players because the the talent level is so high at a at a program in the SEC like that. Yeah, that's right. And I think the the kid. I guess it's, I think it's 60% of our roster we've seen in our camp before. I think that not every kid that comes to camp that wants to be at Vanderbilt is, and I, and that, I get that because I was that kid. If I came to Vanderbilt, I wouldn't have ended up at Vanderbilt, but my intention would be, I'm going to put myself in front of them because I want to go there. Uh, And that's tough too. But at least I, I think a lot of a kid that says, we have a kid named, well, I won't go say his name, but this kid didn't could not afford to come to camp. His mother, as a gift to him, took on another job just to send him to camp. And the kid now is at Vanderbilt because of that. And he only went to one camp. He had choice of one camp. And he put himself here. If he doesn't do that, I don't know if that kid ever ends up here. And he's one of our better players. But I think it, it's just the courage of a kid to say, I want them to see me. I want them to know who I am. I want them to know what my personality is. And more importantly, I want them to know that I want to be there. Yeah. And I think if you want something, you go for it. You know, it's all it's all hands in. So uh, I think that's the most important piece. I love that. I actually distinctly remember another situation where a kid came to your camp. He wasn't, he was very raw. He wasn't ready for Vanderbilt. And Scott Brown actually called me. He was from the Northeast and said, this kid's special. You can help him. And sure enough, he went on had a great career at St. John's. And, mm-hmm. and, and actually, Scott actually even called Corey Muscar at the time to kind of put him on his radar. So there's somebody said about even if it's not your school, they'll they'll often help you find a school that is the right fit for you. Um, maybe on the other end of the spectrum, like what are some of the biggest mistakes that high school players or parents are, are making in their outreach? You know, do you have certain pet peeves that are that are you know tops in, in your recruiting world? I think it goes back to just not releasing that opportunity to them. I, I think when parents take over in games and competition and in camp, that's that's when it, it it becomes difficult for for the kids themselves. I think uh, I, I think that it, and listen, parenting a child in in this day and age is not easy because I think a lot of times you are looking to your left and you are looking to your right. And you're looking to see what your neighbors are doing, but I think your kid can tell you a lot about what they want to do based on their efforts and what they're talking about in the home. And if if it's something that's important to them, then I think what the parent does is they try to guide them with as, as much as they possibly can without getting in the way of, of their child, uh, whether it's just sending them to a team or whether part of a team or you know, it's, it's that child's race. It's no one else's race. It's that child's race. And just to, to be able to hand that off to them and release it to them is, is the most important thing that a the parent can do for a kid, guide them as best they possibly can help them where they need help. But then once they jump into that environment, let them go. 
I think that's great. What, what about the complexities? You know, Vanderbilt's obviously a high academic program. Um, I remember you, you talked about both both Ty and and Adam. You know, back in you know I think that was 2011 high school uh, class. Um, like those guys, they got smacked in the face their first semester. It wasn't easy. Um, it was it was something. No matter how hard they worked in high school, it was eye opening. I remember. I think I remember both of them coming back uh, at Thanksgiving break, telling me how how hard astronomy was. That it blew their mind. They thought it was going to be the one class they could get by with, and and, and it, it challenged them. So I'm curious, what are some of the complexities that that young players want to be student athletes at a high academic institution like that really need to, to keep in mind during, you know, both the application process and in, in actually preparing to go there? Uh, the complexities that just, just generally speaking is it's intense. It, you know, it's, it's an intense school. It's an intense program is intense, a negative thing. It's not, it just means time intense. It, it's, it's, it's uh, the, the first, the first thing, that I, I do in our first meeting in our classroom, it probably lasts an hour and a half. I don't, I don't speak to, I don't bring up the word baseball one time, but I talk about the 24 hour clock for a half hour. I break it down almost at nauseum on what it looks like. And that's, that's sometimes the first, first time anyone's ever been exposed to really looking at how to manage a 24 hour day and actually what does it look like and what goes into it. And it is choices and decisions and it is being organized and it is being disciplined, but it, it's actually being very intentional to what you're about to do. And that sometimes won't hit home or inside the heart for, for months. It could take six months. It could take 12 months. It could take a couple years and has, but at some point in time, it will kick in. And when it does kick in, you watch a guy flourish on the field because he's gained control about the art of how to show up, about how to get into an environment and, and actually be there, be present. But the only way you can be present is if you're organized enough to remove everything that you were supposed to do and get that done first before you did show up and have a plan on how you're going to show up and what it's going to look like. That takes time. There, there's, you know, I would say maturity is the area that is most attackable for a teacher like myself when kids come in and the complexities that you talk about of managing an academic load of 15 hours. Uh, what does it look like if I'm going to manage 15 hours in a classroom, but yet I want to be a major league baseball player and I want to spend six to seven hours on the field. Can that be done? It obviously can be done, but you've got to minimize your fat time. That fat time is that just that extra time, free activity time that becomes when it becomes wider. That's when the stress kicks in because it's going to pull from some other area. When you minimize fat time and say, OK, I know what I'm going to eat. I know how I'm going to eat. I know how much sleep I'm going to get because sleep and my nutrition, those are my steroids. If I manage those really well. I'm, I'm really got a chance to take advantage of every facet of the academic athletic life here. And I think when you look at all these big leaguers that have come from Vanderbilt, those are the areas that they've gained control of. Dansby Swanson did not fly by the seat of his pants. Walker Bueller did not fly by the seat of his pants. There's any athlete, whether it's Kumar Rock or Jack Leiter, they had organization and structure coming in here, and that's why they're going to flourish as potential big league players is because they gained that first. When you don't gain that, 
you don't master the art of showing up. And master the art of showing up is doing everything before you show up in order to gain entry into that space and control that space to where you gain self-esteem and confidence. We interrupt this episode with a quick reminder that this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's NSF certified all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients designed to support your body's nutritional needs. I use this product daily and a ton of our athletes do as well. Head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and claim my special offer today for 10 free travel packs with your first purchase. I'd encourage you to give it a shot too, especially because of this great offer and because it gives you peace of mind knowing that you're covering all your nutritional bases. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y to get that special offer. You know, I'm actually curious, Nick Saban years ago, and I actually asked this, this uh, of Butch Thompson a while back. Um, Saban said that he sometimes had to unrecruit players that arrived on campus. Um, you know, I remember you, you know, challenging returning players in unique ways after you guys won your, your national championship in 2014. You know, what are some strategies that you've employed to keep players locked into that developmental process? You know, when they're they're constantly being tempted by noises that you know maybe push them away. So the you know the constant courtship process, or you know people celebrating them on social media. They're, like we talked about earlier, there's just a lot of noise that can distract players. How do you effectively keep them? humble? Is it, is it an accountability of the team? Is it something else? Well, I think the first thing today is you remove the phone. Uh, <laughs> when you come into the facility, the phone is not a piece of the facility. Uh, I think first off is understanding how to, how to make a, how to develop a relationship and you cannot develop a relationship through a keyboard and a phone. So I think humanistic relationships are number one. I think number number two is just challenging the kids every every single year. I mean, I think you challenge kids by how you recruit and it's not over recruiting, but it's recruiting in a way that continually puts com- competition inside the environment because our kids are renting positions. I mean, just because you had a position yesterday doesn't mean you'll have that position today. You're always renting a position and I've shared many stories with our kids about actual players who were freshman All-Americans their first year that they got beat out in their second year. And I think a lot of times what happens with all of us is I think understanding as a player and as a team of how to recover when you win. How do you how do you recover when things have gone well just to okay, that's in the drawer now. Now I'm going to center myself and move to the next stage of what I'm supposed to do. I think that's really important. And, you know, failing, yeah, it's important because we learn how to be resilient. But learning how to recover from winning opportunities is just as important. So you start to understand how to center yourself. And for us, it's just challenging the kids every day. You've got to earn it every day inside this environment. Um, you, you look for kids and this goes back to your recruiting question, you look for kids who welcome that challenge. If, you're, if you've got a kid that's coming into your environment and say, well, how many shortstops do you have? Well, this probably is not the environment. You know, you, you got to get kids who come in and say, I, I, hey, you know what, Corbs, I don't care who you have. I want to be part of the environment. And whether I don't play right away or do play right away, I want that challenge. And I think that's what Alabama has in football. Kids that go to Alabama in football – they're not going there because they think that, no, this is going to be tough to get on the field right away. But at the end of it, it's going to make me a better player because I'm going to be pushed every single day in a high caliber environment. 
And uh, I think that's probably the part of our culture. That's the process of our culture. It's just it's being challenged every day in an environment where just because you had something yesterday doesn't mean you're going to own it tomorrow. It's, it's so fascinating that you say that because there's, there's an interesting parallel in professional baseball and it's, you know, we're, we're having this conversation in January, we're probably four months out from, you know, advisors telling players like, go to that organization. They, they have a weak system. You'll move fast. It's the absolute like worst methodology you could ever employ because in many cases, the system is weak because it's not a good developmental you know, organization. But even beyond that, you, you want competition, especially because most players aren't necessarily going to go. I mean, Danzy Sponson didn't go to the, the big leagues with the team that drafted him. Very few players do. Um, so I always say, you know, try to find the absolute best developmental opportunity. And that's not just you know, who's got the best drills, who's got the best facilities. It's who's going to actually challenge you to be better tomorrow than you were today. Um, so I love those principles. Um, maybe in that mindset of development, maybe speak to a little bit of a roadmap for, say, you've got a 15 year older, you know, who, who is a pr- pretty good player that would like to be an athlete at, at Vanderbilt. Like what steps do you think at that age, 15 to 18 are important for him to take, to set himself up for being you know, successful in, in the SEC? Uh, well, I think his investment level, number one, I, I think it's, if you, if you really, really want something, you, you have to put time and energy inside that time into it. I mean, I I think kids that end up at at the SEC level are very focused and very passionate about getting here. Um, Now, that can change sometimes, Eric, when kids get that opportunity, maybe at the age of 14, because they may lose their hunger along the way. But I think the players that that I've seen that have evolved and grown the most are the kids that have committed to us at 16, 17, and their hunger has never waned. I mean, whatever, however they wanted to, whatever they wanted, their passion for it just got stronger and stronger by the time they got here and after they came here. But I think if you're 15 years of age and you're wanting something like this, I I think, number one, it's the curiosity of the kid to ask those questions of players that are there right now to see what they're doing uh, and and start to understand that it's not a race to get to where you want to go, but it's more about what are you doing right now in order to, to, to get what what you want down the road and i think it's putting yourself in the right situations whether it's uh uh good teams that you're that you're going to play with and i say teams not events it's uh surrounding yourself with like-minded people like yourself that are doing those things on those off times and how you're spending that extra time on your body and on your mind and what you're ingesting not just in your mouth but in your brain um, and I think it's also if you're 15 years of age and going back to what we were talking about just a few minutes ago is is putting yourself on campus and putting yourself in front of people in a camp scenario where you can be seen. I think that matters. That matters a lot. As I said, 60 percent of our kids showed up on campus, whether it was their freshman year or sophomore year. We didn't necessarily maybe commit them right away at that time. But I can tell you, if we didn't commit them, we took we took a lot of uh, time and energy to continue to watch them develop and, and it, they ended up on our campus. But basically what, what I think that does is, again, from a kid's perspective, is it just shows the university is this kid wants to be here. He showed up here, showed up a second time. There, there's something to be said about that. And we've had good success with that. That's great feedback. Um, maybe shifting gears a little bit. Um, 
you know, we have a lot of players, parents uh, that, that listen to this podcast, but also there are tons of coaches out there that are listening to try to get better at their jobs. Um, like you mentioned earlier, you're 38 years into this. And, you know, from what I know of you, you're, you're a continuous improvement guy. You're always trying to find ways to be better now than you were last year. Um, you know, are there certain key habits that you try to employ so that you're better each year? Um, like I know you're a voracious, you know, workout guy. I know you're very meticulous in nutrition. So you lead by example with a lot of your guys in that regard. Um, that's something all the players have spoken about over the years. But are there other ways that you try to challenge yourself so that you, you feel like the Tim Corbin of 2023 is, is better than the Tim Corbin of 2022? Yeah, I think it's reinventing yourself. I think it's asking yourself some some tough questions too after every year. Uh, I, I think it's also what's been a benefit of mine, selfishly and personally, is marrying a good teammate. You know, I, I think it's it's marrying someone that is able to ask those tough questions as well and able to challenge your mind and able to challenge your thought processes on on what you do. I, I think uh, I'm pliable. I'm very curious. Uh, I am disciplined. So I, I, I do the same things every day. I don't wane from that too much. So I feel like from a modeling standpoint, I, I try to model those behaviors for the kids as well. But I think from a, a standpoint of uh, helping the kids, if I'm going to help the kids that come into this program, I've got to better myself too. This just isn't a one-way street. It's just not for the betterment. If the kids are going to get better, it's only because I'm challenging myself and I'm challenging our staff to get better too. And you say, what does getting better mean? Well, I, I think physically, I mean, I think the older you get, you create more energy by staying in shape, by getting rest, by putting good things in your body. You certainly don't recoup that energy as you get older by moving away from that. So I think that's number one. And I think that's where the discipline kicks in for me. I think number two, it's being very curious about what we're doing and the continuation of saddling up with other coaches, maybe from other sports. I mean, I've gotten close with Coach Belichick. I've gotten close with Coach Stevens. I've, you know, Gino Oriema is a good friend of mine now. Bruce Brown, who's been a model, uh, just a, a, a great asset for me. He's now 75 years old. I mean, I would rather hang around with people that have a great deal of wisdom, that have been through the wars and ask them a lot of questions on how to they've reinvented themselves too. So I just think that the learning piece is continuous. I don't even look at it as learning though, Eric. I, I mean, I just look at it as being, I just want to ask a lot of questions. I want to ask a lot of questions and I want to see what kind of feedback I get. And I guess that is learning. But in the meantime too, uh, I'm, I'm bettering myself because of that information that I'm gaining from those people that I really trust. I love that. Um, so we always wrap up with a lightning round. Um, mm -hmm. Quick questions. You can be as detailed or, or, or you know, short as you'd like, but um, we'll start with what's one book that you think every player should read? Um, I'm not necessarily, a, a, I don't read a ton of books, but I read enough mm -hmm. and you're good. I don't know. I, I think this book and I, because I've talked about it in, in the classroom with our kids, and it's not necessarily a sports book, but yet it has everything to do with sports. It's called Make Your Bed, and it's it's written. It's a small little book. It's it's written by a guy named Admiral McRaven, and he wrote it because he spoke at a University of Texas commencement um, event. And he talked about it. But then after he spoke about it, it got so much attention. And you, if you Google it, you can listen to him. 
But then he, he decided to write a book. I think it's a tremendous book because what it does is it speaks to little things in your life, especially being a young person that can actually change your life and starting your day with just a small task. It talks about team. It talks about your heart. It talks about failure. It talks about not quitting. It talks about things that actually have everything to do with sports. And again, goes back to that concept of like just showing up and, and gaining self-esteem and confidence through other things that have nothing to do with sport, but yet give you confidence inside of sport so you can you can do well. So I, I think to me, if I was a young kid, because it's a simple read and an easy read, I think it would be a tremendous resource for any young kid to read. That's awesome. Um, if you could go back in time and give Tim Corbin some advice 30 years ago as you were embarking on your I guess, first decade of your coaching career, what, what would it be? I just think patience. I, I think what I've learned along the way is, is is just putting so much mental energy into winning and losing and just kind of restructuring my thought process along the way of, is that important? Of course, it's it's why we play sports. But at the same time, when that's all you're focused on, it can be so damning to yourself, number one. And if it's damning to yourself, then you certainly are not modeling what what you want for your kids. And I, I think what I, what I did started to do later with time is put so much more importance on character development of the kids. I, I thought that's when our program started to change a little bit more for the better. Uh, not that we put less emphasis on competition and winning, not at all. But I think where our focus was pointed was more on that. And I think what it did is it, it was for the betterment of myself personally, uh, because as you teach something, you, you actually are, it's almost like self-reflection and, and self, self-teaching too. You're, you're helping yourself as, as much as you're helping the kids. But, but I think uh, as a young person, um, moving away from that and making that important, but yet at the same time, not make it the emphasis of everything that you do. That's great. I had written down favorite coaching memory, but I feel mm-hmm. like you would have a very hard time picking amongst a lot of them. So feel free to answer, or you could even say the, the most teachable moment for your coaching career. Like, is there something that it, you know, basically helped you the most, you know, to, to learn and move forward? Uh, well, I think losing always gives you a great laboratory to teach a lot of different things, maybe not right after the moment, but maybe the next day. So I've always felt like I've been able to take more advantages of, of those opportunities. Um, I, I think the thing about teaching and coaching is there's a lot of joy and there's a lot of heartache. It, it really is. Um, uh, and I mean that humanistically too. I mean, we've lost players. Our program has, has really we've we've had to we've had to get through tough stretch stretches because of just losing players uh in 2016 we lost a player 2012 we lost a player i mean those those things never go away uh did they strengthen the program yeah in a different way uh but the, they certainly leave a scar that that can can never be covered up but i i think the memories that that we gain i don't mean to be hokey is you know, Worth Scott's home run in 2003 when we, we beat Tennessee to go to the SEC tournament for the first time in 15 years. That was kind of a leap, leapfrog moment um, for us. I would say the best memories that I have personally are 
watching kids leave this program, get married, have kids. And then when we talk, we talk more about their kids than we talk about baseball. We went to Dansby Swanson's wedding um, a few weeks ago. And on Friday night, Eric, he had a party for everyone that was coming, which I think was a great idea because it wasn't a rehearsal dinner. He just wanted to include everyone that made the trip. Maggie and I were thinking about not going. We're thinking about getting there, just going to bed. And then thank God we went because when we went, we sat in a corner or stood in a corner with like 15 different players for three hours. And all we talked about were stories. We didn't talk about winning a game one time. No one talked about a score. No one talked about a national championship. It was everything but. And I just thought to myself, that's why you do it. That's why you do it right there, because it left an emotion with them that they wanted to recreate and re-talk about. And I think the, if you're talking about memories, those are the memories that I think that make Maggie and I go back to our room after that and said, this is why we're doing it. This is exactly why we're doing it. That's the gift. Those are the paychecks that don't come in the form of money. That's awesome. Um, last question, maybe the most important one. We have, we have a lot of kids and parents who listen to this podcast together you know, on the way to practice or a game. If you give one bit of advice to, to both the kids and the parents, what, what would it be? Well, I, I th- there might be several. I, I think I, I said it during, but learn to love your kid, parents more, but depend on them less. I think as you get older, learn how to love the fact that your parents put you in situations to help you grow. Now, as you're growing, show them that you love them more by how you reflect them. Because I, I think we just past Christmas. And it's great to get a gift and open a gift up. But the gift that a parent gets is by how their child reflects them when their child is away from the home. I I think that's the greatest gift that you can give your parents. And really, we don't have any rules at Vanderbilt. And if there was one, it would just be, don't do anything that would embarrass your parents. What, what, What doesn't that cover? It covers everything. And if you just live live a life in a way that it's reflective of how you were raised, I think it's the greatest gift that, that you can give your folks. I think simply try to get off your phone as much as you can. Your phone is, is, can, be, can, can take away so many opportunities that you can have if you just release yourself from that and just engage in humanistic thought, uh, just care and just being beside someone and, and just not having that phone as a part of, of your environment. I think the other other piece that uh, try to play other sports is if, if you can. I think other sports are just such a great training ground for the sport that you're playing. You don't have to play baseball 12 months out of the year to become a better baseball player. You may be coming a better baseball player when you step away from the game because you're giving yourself a chance to reset. You're giving yourself to actually grow in other areas that when you do get on the field of baseball is going to better you once you get inside of, of competition. But I, I, I think that would be the, the greatest advice I, I could, could give uh, a young person. That's outstanding and a, and a great place to wrap up on. Um, Tim, that was outstanding. Thank you so much for taking the time. And, and also thank you for all you've done, not just for, for me and our conversations over the years and our interactions, but also, you know, you, you're, you're, whenever the day comes, you're leaving the game much better than you found it. So I, I respect all your contributions to the industry for sure. 
Well, I appreciate it. And I, I respect yours too, because I knew that the first time we met, I, I, I knew that you were going to be very successful doing what you're doing. And and you are, and you've touched as many lives as I have. So I appreciate what you've done too, Eric. And it's good to reconnect even in this Absolutely. forum right here. So thanks for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you.